Welcome to the Homegrown Podcast from Keep Indiana Learning. I'm Lena Darnay, co-hosting today with Courtney Flesner. We're both professional learning specialists for Keep Indiana Learning. We're so excited to have you here today. It's going to be a great conversation. It's the first week of March 2022, and of course, we're following right on the heels of Black History Month. Today, Courtney and I are talking with two amazing educators and having an open conversation about ways to start talking about Black history as more than a month and truly embracing Black and marginalized voices, perspectives, and contributions throughout the year. Today, we welcome Ayana Coles, an elementary assistant principal, and Dr. Denisha Murph, a curriculum coordinator. Thank you both so much for joining us. As we work with equity, I think it's important to share a little bit about the experiences that inform our perspectives and our lenses. So could we go around and just share a little bit about our background? Hey, everyone. Yeah, you know, what's interesting is I feel like mine dates back to my own sort of high school experience where I grew up. I lived in Indianapolis until I was 10 and attended schools um, in Lawrence Township where they were um, still doing busing for desegregation. And um, I didn't know (laughs) that that was what was going on. And so I didn't know that school existed without people who didn't look like me until I moved to the Chicago suburbs where nobody, everybody looked like me. And I was kind of outraged (laughs) that that is just not the reality of the world. And I didn't really completely understand it as a young person. And so spent a lot of time sort of studying and thinking about it through all the years. I've taught in a lot of different schools over the years um, in in a lot of different places. The majority um, of which I had children, um, black and brown children in my classes, children that did not speak English as their first language, sometimes really at all, and um, just have thought really hard about what does this look like for our schools and our kids in order to create environments where everybody has the opportunity to learn. Courtney, that's really fascinating and very different from my upbringing. I was raised in Colorado in a very white neighborhood. Um, pretty rural area. And when I got my first teaching job here in Indianapolis at a large urban school district that's mostly Black and Latinx, I really went through um, an honest awakening to the needs to support um, diverse voices. So I'm a school librarian by trade. I've always been a school librarian in my educational career in the schools. And I realized in the early 2000s, it was very difficult to find books written by authors of color featuring protagonists of color who were not um, either stereotyped or put into situations that weren't authentic um, or that didn't feature some kind of a, a white savior main character. And so my journey towards more equitable representation and support for my students really comes from a librarian perspective. Ayana, can you tell us a little bit about your story? Sure. So I was one of those bust kids who went to (laughs) Lawrence Township (laughs) Schools. I grew up on the east side, um, down the street from Arlington High School, and then was bused to Lawrence Township Schools. So my story is um, from being um, a little girl whose father was, um, you could call him militant, who wanted to instill in his children um, the importance of loving their um, Black Blackness and not being ashamed of it. And then as an educator, 
was in, that was instilled in well not loving your blackness but understanding um, um, and appreciating differences was continued to be instilled in me at IEPY and then now as a teacher and um, as an administrator and as a mother um, those values are still um, ones that I hold true to me um, I am an activist true to heart I'm a critical race theorist I'm not afraid to say that and um, I love disrupting dominant narratives. That's who I am. <laughs> Thank you for joining us today. And uh, Dr. Denisha Murph. Hi, I'm Denisha Murph. I actually grew up up north in a smaller town. Um, I can definitely say that as a person from a minoritized group, I lived around people that looked like me, but I attended school in a space where I might have been one or two um, in the classroom. So honestly, even though I always enjoyed learning and growing, because that's just who I was, I, at the end of the day, I was ready to go back home. I need to take that mask off, take that off, just get back to being Disha instead of Denisha. Um, growing up, I definitely agree with Ayana because I was always told that there was nothing that I could not do. If I wanted to do something, I could do it. I could be the best of in any group that I was a part of. And so we were very much pushed in that direction to excel and to go higher, not to feel limitations and to be proud of who we are. We were also taught that this is not a petting zoo. So everybody does not get to touch your hair or touch your skin. So those are lessons we learned very early on because that was just not okay. Um, it's okay to have questions, but it's not okay for me to always be the representative of everything in my entire group. Um, later on, went to Ball State University, um, had to continue to know how to use my voice. I will not say my experience was not good because overall I had a great college experience, but there were times where I had to learn how to use my voice to speak up for myself at a higher level without a parent being around. Um, and so I learned how to do that. And then I was able to just keep on taking off. Um, but what I would say is that the things that were instilled in me as a young person is evident of why I do what I do today. Being a part of the school environment has really helped me to continue to make sure that students have the opportunity to be in a culturally responsive environment. I don't want them with all that weight of carrying masks and putting them on all day, ready to go home, waiting for that 2.30 bell. I want them to know they can be in a space, they can excel, and they can be their most authentic self. So that is really a part of why I do the work that I do. I would definitely agree about being an activist. I make sure my voice is heard. And we don't have to always agree, but we can also know how to respectfully disagree because I'm going to keep pushing harder to open up doors for people who have not always felt heard. Thank you both so much for being here with us today. This is going to be a great conversation. So as we mentioned at the start, this episode is coming out right after Black History Month is wrapping up, but we want to talk about how we can, as educators, pull the narrative from this mostly white-centered perspective and say that it doesn't end on February 28th, that the perspective of people of color, the black narrative, the modern movements that are supporting the changes that are happening, those become part of our um, daily units, our conversations. So let's think about some key ways that we might be able to start paying attention. Um, 
I can go first if that's okay. Um, I think something that we talk a lot about when we were looking at how do we make sure that we are embracing everyone's culture in the classroom is as teachers look at their curriculum and their instructional um, activities, ask yourself some key questions. I was able to attend uh, Black History as American History from Columbia University through some workshops, and they asked some really poignant questions. For example, when you look at this material, who's telling the story? Who has the power in this story? Where are all the people that are like historically marginalized? Where are they in this story? Whose perspectives are being told? Whose perspectives are missing? What innovations, what ideas, what activism, what movements, what identities? Like how are those being developed and who is benefiting from what's being shared? And so those are very important questions to ask as you are going through your curriculum and your instructional practices. And it helps you to look out at your classroom and ask yourself, am I representing everybody that's sitting in front of me? Have I really been critical, looking through a critical lens to ask myself these very hard questions? Because you do have to search and look, but there are more materials now than ever before. To piggyback on that, I would say listen to your students. Like your students will, if you listen to them, they'll tell you what they need. They'll tell you what they're interested in. And if you allow them to drive um, that content, you'll get a lot more engagement. Um, and you also do a lot more transformational um, teaching. And then the other thing is to maybe do some interrogation of yourself. So even with those questions that you're asking, um, Dr. Marf, with the um, the content, like think, ask those questions of yourselves. Like what are the things that you are engaging in on a daily basis? Are you only listening to dominant um, perspectives and dominant ideologies? Because if you're only doing that, it's gonna be really hard for you to incorporate those um, marginalized voices in your classroom. Absolutely, yes. I'm thinking about a teacher's reaction to that as thinking, oh, do you mean I have to go through all my books and do that for every book that I read? And like my response to that is why not? Like, why not? You know? And so and I guess, I guess that's the activist in me. Like, yes, mm -hmm. that's what you do. But what do we say as leaders to teachers who respond that way that we want outcome and not total resistance? I I think that what, what is your purpose of teaching? Like, what is your ultimate goal? If your ultimate goal is just test scores and compliance, then you, you probably won't want to look in those, those books. But if your ultimate goal is to teach your children how to be, um, or to cultivate, because our kids are, all kids are, are critical thinkers. They critically think about video games all day, every day. <laughs> so <laughs> if your goal is to cultivate that, that engagement and that curiosity and that learning in your classroom, then you're going to take whatever measures you need to take to do that. And if you're only, again, presenting dominant, um, tried and true, I don't even know if it's tried and true, but we call it tried and true ways of teaching then um, you're not gonna reach your goal. So what is your goal when you're working with your students? Are you really trying to help them to learn how to engage in the world and leave their mark? Or are you just wanting them to be um, people who just don't, you know, just go with the flow? Or we just want the status quo or do we wanna disrupt that? I love that. I feel like that is relevant across, across so many content areas and so many just ways that we teach kids and what we're, what we're preparing 
to, to take over. So I, that is such a great response to that, Ayana. I think it's also really essential that we realize that it's not going to happen overnight, right? right? So a lot of times I hear from teachers, like that's going to take a lot of time. I'm like, right. But I'm not telling you, you have to do it tonight. Like I'm yes. saying like, let's, let's take the time that it needs. So as you are pulling books for an upcoming unit or like Courtney mentioned earlier, the uh, mentor texts that you might use or some of the examples that you're going to pull through, look at them then. Look critically there and just say, is there a better option? Is there a more modern option? Is there a, an option from a different perspective or a point of view? Don't do your whole curriculum overnight. Exactly. Exactly. One thing that we did um, when I was at the building level is we really tapped into our media specialist because her whole desire was to get books into hands of our students to increase their volume of reading. And so we talked about how we have to work smarter and use the resources in front of us. As the administrator, I'll make sure you have resources, time, and support. And once I do those things, there's not too many excuses you can use to not put this into play in your classroom. And she came up with this list of books and consistently shared and talked about how we had our units of study and where things could go. She had them out accessible. They were out there in just that teacher section for them to grab. And it changed things because people were concerned about how much time it would take because I've been using this book for three years and I will. Okay. Resources, time, support. We've given you resources. We've given you time. Now we've given you that support. So here you go. And it was a game changer. The kids were, were loving it because they were seeing different books. But we did have to pull our media specialists into that to really help um, save lot, lots of time. But she didn't mind because she loved it. I love that. And I guess the other thing that I was thinking about is like, isn't that what you're doing anyway? Like, are you really picking up a book that you've never read before to use in your <laughs> mini lesson or to use in your class? Like, aren't you reading it anyway? So asking a couple of extra questions to make sure that you are hitting points of view that are really, really important actually isn't that hard because right. you, and, and don't get me wrong. There are books that, you know, for years I continued to use in my classroom because I loved them, you know, as a reader, but if I were still teaching now, I would probably really have to let go of some of them that, <laughs> that are like copyright 1972 because I liked <laughs> them. So, <laughs> you know, even if the content's really good, there's other things that are super outdated. So like those are processes that we have to go through no matter what. Maybe putting myself into the line of fire, but I was always on the side of getting rid of To Kill a Mockingbird from our freshman reading, you know, reading mm -hmm. list that that was that like the one that they always read. And we thought it was so great because there was this like racial stance. And I was like, but Atticus is the biggest white savior of all of these. He's He's centered in all of this. It's his story. He's the one that's celebrated. He's the, the yeah. protagonist and he's a white man, right? Like we got plenty of those. And I feel like we could be doing a lot better work if we let go of some of those favorites, right? Like, mm -hmm. oh, I had to read that as a kid and I loved it. Therefore, every child has to read it and they will have to love it too. Yes. And I mean, I was the yeah. librarian, the one saying, Harper Lee might be a little outdated. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. That's a, that is a prime example. The ninth grade to kill a mockingbird is the perfect example of that. But they've been just like rinse and repeat that unit for 20 plus years. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So it does. And the required text, like this is the required text. Yeah. But there's some other 
texts that you could use like they're they're everywhere or what about to kill a mockingbird next you know next to i I don't know just mercy oh my gosh if you put just mercy and said like what would you rather read i mean i would tell you the kids right now would look rather read just mercy yeah or what Mm -hmm. if they compared the two i was thinking of like sometimes it's not even taking those those texts off the shelf but Look at them through a different lens. So some of the questions that you were asked, you were saying, Dr. Murph, like looking at those texts that we use all the time, but more critically, because the kids will gather a lot of information from that as well. And also to piggyback on that, your kids could do an audit of your um, Ooh, yes. or, um classroom libraries and help mm-hmm. you to figure out and to, to determine what kind of text you need to include in there and, and possibly need to get rid of. Talk about standards-based critical thinking strategies. If they have to go through those books and use multiple resources to synthesize information, oh my gosh, I think we just checked the list of all the important things, including being representative of our students' voice. That's amazing. Next unit we're doing. That's what we got to do. I'm also thinking about kid perspective, Ayana. What about asking the question, how would this story play out today? Mm -hmm. You know, or how, how, you know, compare this to events happening in our world today, mm-hmm. something like that to get them thinking, you know, would Harper really have written the story differently? I don't um, even know To Kill a Mockingbird. I'm like, who's Harper? <laughs> you should read To Kill a Mockingbird just to, just to read in all your spare time, Ayana. <laughs> but it's good to know maybe that you didn't have to read it in ninth grade. Mm-hmm. Yes, that's what I need to know. Greg Gatsby, right yeah. there. Daisy. Yeah. She's that other female character that could also be let go. (laughs) So speaking of books and where you get them. So of course, as a librarian, um, that's very close to my heart. And I have to do a shout out for an Indiana owned, um, black woman owned bookstore in the South Bend area, brain layer books, Kathy Burnett, go to brainlayerbooks.com, go up there if you're in Northern Indiana area or make a pilgrimage from wherever you are to go and visit this independent bookstore. And her website has so many amazing resources. And the, the mission of her bookstore is to celebrate those marginalized voices, to spotlight all the work going on with um, authors of color and characters of marginalized um, experiences and race and all the diversity. And I just can't say enough good things about brain layer books. It's also, and if you mix up the letters in librarian, you get brain layer. And she was a school librarian um, in the South Bend area. And so Again, another shout out for media specialists. I kind of love that this is like a love fest for media specialists, librarians (laughs) today. (laughs) We've talked a little bit about bringing in new voices to some literature pieces, but Courtney, your math, can you tell us a little bit about how we start to look at other content areas for centering marginalized voices? Yeah, I mean, I think about the situations that we um, give kids in math class to solve story problems. How are those situations relevant to the lives that kids are living in the world in which they live um, and what they are exposed to? Um, It's amazing how you can use math to um, think about social issues. I actually, um, in my classes at IUPUI, they all 
um, they had the assignment of having to choose a social issue and use math to sort of think about it and um, and come up with like solutions or like activists ideas in order to, you know, take next steps to work through that social issue. And it was fascinating what my students would come up with. But I would say to them after we did those presentations, I'm like, now you go do these. Like when you go to your school, <laughs> go do these because this is the kind of work that kids need to do and see. And so I think that that's a big, a big piece of it. And so often in textbooks, it's like, oh my gosh, they change the name, you know, they give some name that doesn't sound like a white person's name. And they think that they're, you know, solving the problem of hitting different mm -hmm. cultures, but you know, we'll, it'll be in the middle of Indiana where we're reading a story problem about, um, you know, Luis who goes to the beach, <laughs> you know, like none of that is helping anybody um, think about other other people other than other than white people so that's just one or you know a couple of ways to sort of think about that and it's a big topic in the math education world um, if you ever have the opportunity to read Gloria Latz and Billings um, but that's just good teaching um, that is a um, amazing, easy, short read. Um, I've read it at least twice a year for the past like 10 years. And actually I was just thinking recently how, since I'm not teaching IUPUI anymore, I haven't read it, uh, like this year, this semester, and I need to pull it out, but there are ideas and resources and things out there. And I, I really love that phrase, but that's just good teaching, you know, mm -hmm. and, and it's really, it's not that hard to, um, infuse other people's worlds other than the, the white man's world. I, I like the idea of you having the, the um, pre-service teachers do that because if you think about it, we solve problems in our world all the time through math. And so we look at it with a more critical lens and look at it through solving social justice issues through math. It is just good teaching. It's authentic learning. It'll help again with engagement with your students. And there is a book called reading and writing the world through math that gives some examples, even in elementary school, of how students can look at um, issues through a math lens and solve it through a math math strategies. Math yeah, though uh, the book, the Linda Christensen books, um, was one of my favorite authors, and 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 where I got so many of my ideas uh, later in my teaching career. Gosh, and my students were so into the project like one day I just introduced to them a, um, a tax um, an article out of the San Francisco Chronicle about how they were going to tax plastic bags you know people were going to have to pay more for the plastic bags that they were getting their groceries in and my students it was when we were at the project school Ayana they just they took off like wait hold on you know, sometimes they double bag and we didn't ask them to double bag. Would they have to, would they, we, we get charged to double bag and they were like just doing math on their own. And then it just turned into this massive project on how many plastic bags are used and how much it was going to cost them in their neighborhood. And I mean, it, it, it just, it, and it took off. And so kids will do that when they're given the opportunity. 
Mm-hmm. And that's important that you say that because I always think about people are saying, you know, well, our students, they're not, you know, they're not succeeding. They're not achieving. Well, it's because we're doing lots of skill and drill with them. Mm-hmm. Nothing that's inquiry based, no project based activities. When you look at every all the research, when it's culturally responsive and I always bring that up, y'all know I do. But mm-hmm. that's a part of it. Like, what does this mean for them? How does that impact their neighborhood? What are they making connections with? It means that we need to provide them with the same type of critical thinking activities that we would for students that we maybe it might be a high ability group or a gifted and talented program. They've shown time mm-hmm. and time again, they can thrive when giving those opportunities mm-hmm. because they're making real world connections and being able to apply the skills, not just doing worksheet after worksheet after worksheet. And these are just facts, like to make an assumption that a kid can't, you know, stomach just a fact, you know, where did they read the entire San Francisco Chronicle article? No, I, 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 I read it out loud to them and we had, it was a shared reading experience, you know, and like, and it turned, and they turned it into all the other things I was there to facilitate and you know, a lot of the kids in my classroom were kids that a lot of people have given up on in their lives. And if they mm-hmm. could have seen them in action over plastic bag tax, um, it was unbelievable. And I, yes. I'm so grateful for that experience that I had. It feels so long ago now, but mm-hmm. it always stands out to me because I always think about how it was completely student driven. And mm-hmm. all I did was share a current event. Mm-hmm. And I, I did a project with my um, fifth graders on um, uniforms, like even something that that basic, but we took it a step le- a step further where I showed them how to use what used to be called the compass, the IDOE compass, where you can look at the um, yes. demographic of schools. So they were looking at pie graphs and looking at the population and they could, they knew which ones, which school districts were um, required to wear uniforms and which school districts weren't. And from looking at the, the IDOE uh, compass, they were able to determine that mostly schools who have um, lower socioeconomic status had to wear uniforms and more of the privileged schools didn't. So then they were fueled by that and wanted to know how to change that. But even that little small of looking at math in, um, in that way, um, it helped, it tied in math, it tied in um, speaking in dominant American English because they had to call, they, called the schools to ask if they, their students wore uniforms to explain to them what they were doing. So those authentic um, inquiry and exploration projects are not just for high ability students. Yes. <laughs> it's just good teaching. It's just good teaching. <laughs> yes. Courtney, what would you say is your takeaway of like, what would be a first step for you if you were going to go back into the classroom today? Oh my gosh. I were going to go, I would, I would, I would start the way I finished because that project was at the end of my teaching career. I would start that way. I would start by just providing, um, relevant, uh, facts (laughs) to kids and finding out what they do with them and where they go with them and design my, um, design the teaching and learning around that. Anna, what about you? What would your advice be for someone just to get started? Um, I would say that this work is messy. Um, Dr. Murph used culturally relevant and I use culturally sustaining and they're, they're, they're one and the same, but it's messy to be a culturally sustaining um, educator. So just um, find, find a tribe of people to work with, be reflective, don't be afraid to ask questions and think about your purpose and and teaching, what do you want your students to do with the information that you're providing with 
providing for them, short term or long term? I would probably I think they need to know themselves first, mm. investigate their own uh, biases, knowing that everybody has those and look really critically at how that may impact the people, the little ones sitting in front of them or if it's high school, the big people but they're still children. Um, look at how that could impact the students that they're serving. Look at the level of expectations that they have for every student um, as they go through the work and how are they creating those critical relationships with their students. Relationships matter. And I know from, you know, well, we've been doing this, we've all been doing this for years, but relationships matter. It is so big and it sounds so cliche, but there are students that may have had a difficult year with one person and had a totally different year with another teacher. And I want people to know that when kids know how you feel about them and if you're creating your lessons with them in mind, not just necessarily covering a standard, you're going to see some great things take place. Mm-hmm. It's going to be phenomenal. And I only say that to say I ran into a bunch of young people at our game on Friday night, kids that I had as either a teacher a principal or an AP and looking at them, knowing the growth that they have experienced over the years and the connections that we made and the impact I had on them, but also the impact they had on me. And so for people never to forget that this is a journey and you're never going to fully arrive, you got to be open to the process, open to the journey, open to learn. And sometimes knowing that you're not going to be right a great deal of time if you're going to be actively engaged in this work. That's huge. And I tell you, if I was walking back into a school library, the first thing that I would do is find a group of kids who wanted to help me weed the books that didn't make sense to them. Because that was when you said that I like have the kids go through your classroom library. I was like, of course they should. Of course they should be the ones that help support you as they talk about relevance and connection to their own life and perspective. And of course we want them to have access to multiple perspectives and we would help them grow that but uh, that student voice is always so key. And I think that's what keeps us honest and keeps us true to the journey. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yes. Well, everyone, thank you so much for joining us today on the Homegrown Podcast from Keep Indiana Learning. We appreciate your time. We appreciate your voice. You appreci- we appreciate you helping us grow from the classroom up as we are transforming teaching and learning. And we'll see you all again very soon. Thank you for joining us on this episode of the Homegrown Podcast from Keep Indiana Learning. It really helps us if you can rate us, review us, and share us with your friends. We'd like to make sure that we are reaching everybody that we can so that we can connect, learn, and grow together. Have you heard about our summer conference? It's coming up on June 14th and 15th, and it's the Virtually Different Summer Conference. All virtual, but virtually different. We're bringing in national thought leaders, local practitioners, statewide thinkers, change makers, innovators, and educators. We hope you can join us. It's only $25 and the recorded content will be available for up to a year after the conference. Meaning if you can't join us live on June 14th and 15th, you can still join us as we learn and grow. Visit keepindianalearning.org slash summer conference for more information. The Homegrown Podcast is part of Keep Indiana Learning, powered by the Central Indiana Educational Service Center.